Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership and the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Samet. Dr. Samet is a professor of English at the United States Military Academy. She completed her undergraduate work at Harvard, her master's at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and her doctorate at Yale. Dr. Samet is the author of several books on the soldier's experience, including No Man's Land, The Soldier's Heart, and Willing Obedience. In 2015, Elizabeth also published a Norton anthology titled Leadership, Essential Writings by Our Greatest Thinkers. You can also find Dr. Samet's work in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Bloomberg. The opinions Elizabeth, Elizabeth expresses on this podcast are her own and do not necessarily reflect those of West Point, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks so much, Miles. It's really nice to be with you today on your podcast. Oh, thank you so much for for making the time. Everyone has uh, everyone has sort of uh, uh, their own personal heroes and favorite favorite scholars in the leadership world, and, and you were certainly one of mine. So this is a real treat for me. Oh well, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll get started with uh, a segment that we do in every podcast called Higher Ed: Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to provide two true stories from higher education current events and one lie, and you will have to parse out the lie. So the theme this week is faculty intrigue. Are you ready for your three options? I am ready. Okay, great. So the University of Cambridge recently accepted applications for a professorship of play. The position, funded by a donation from LEGO, is attached to a play research center also supported by the tiny plastic toy giant. The university says it aims to produce play-oriented research so that children are equipped with 21st century skills like problem solving, teamwork, and self-control. So that is your first option, professorship of play at Cambridge. Your second option is Bradford Blackburn, the Area Director of Music Technology and Composition at the University of Tampa, recently attracted attention to campus for creating an endless loop of babies crying in response to President Trump's voice. The audio file is displayed at an exhibit on campus in collaboration with an art student's senior thesis. So that's your second option. And then your third option is that the University of Central Florida recently announced an adjunct professor of psychology wouldn't be retained. The decision followed an allegation that the professor traded perfect grades on the final examination for a $100 donation to charity. So your options are professorship of play at, uh, at Cambridge, the uh, President Trump's uh, voice making babies cry at the University of Tampa, and a uh, sort of pay-for-play uh, charity scandal at the University of Central Florida. Okay. Um, these are hard. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe, maybe B is false, the, the baby's crying. It's so hard to predict what they will cry in response to, but um, maybe B. Okay, great. So you are correct. That is wow. the uh, that is the lie. So okay. there is uh, so Cambridge is currently seeking a professor of play, and uh, there was uh, an adjunct professor was not retained at the University of Central Florida. Uh, apparently, that was a, a sort of misunderstanding, um, or at least the, that professor says. And uh, so yes, there is no, as far as I know, there is no art exhibit at the University of Tampa uh, with babies crying. So, okay. so, so that is Higher Ed Two Truths and a Lie. Our next segment is designed to help the listeners understand uh, you as a person, as a professional. It's called Getting to Know Elizabeth. So what led you into academia? 
Well, I think in in part, or maybe chiefly and originally, uh, I really enjoyed, uh, particularly as an undergraduate, pursuing research and the kind of detective work that that uh, consists of at a certain stage and discovering that uh, you think you know what you're researching and it turns into something wholly different. And I found that very exciting as one thing led to another and really enjoyed that environment uh, and so decided to pursue um, graduate degree. And then I think most graduate students, I'm not sh- I, I think I'm, I'm fairly confident about this, most graduate students don't understand fully the kinds of responsibilities they're assuming when they choose an academic career in terms of teaching. And mm-hmm. uh, that became more and more obvious to me as I went along in graduate school and more important to me and to think about what kind of educator I wanted to be and the ways in which one's solitary life, often solitary life as a scholar, intersects with one's life in the classroom. And I think that's a constant negotiation for for anyone who's chosen an academic career. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that, uh, that is certainly a, certainly a, a nuanced um, reality of being a faculty member. Um, so I know your study of Ulysses S. Grant led to your work at West Point. So what in particular fascinated you about President Grant? Well, I found Grant in uh, graduate school, and I can't even anymore do the archaeology that got me to Grant and, to got, and, and got me to um, sort of the discovery of this 19th century American voice, his memoirs, as I found them, I was supposed to be writing my dissertation and I was reading Grant's memoirs. Those turned out to be complimentary projects in the end, but I didn't know that at the time. (laughs) And he is a very uh, different and unexpected voice. And the way that he represents war did not seem to me conventional, did not seem to me akin to the other accounts of the Civil War in particular, which often has, despite its carnage, uh, often has a sort of romantic haze about it and a very 19th century notion of war as heroic endeavor. And Grant didn't mm-hmm. seem to have that. Instead, approached it in a very businesslike manner, but also revealed throughout what we would today call, I guess, a kind of psychological insight into the ways in which both his fellow Union officers and soldiers and his enemy approached war and made decisions. And that seemed very interesting to me, that he would dwell on various figures in the war and would often say, I knew so-and-so at West Point when he was a cadet, or I fought with so-and-so in the Mexican War. And that gave him insight into how people would behave in the Civil War. And that seemed to me a very fascinating area of focus. Mm. Okay. So... Uh, so you had me from uh, the very beginning of your your book leadership. So the uh, as uh, folks might imagine, uh, the uh, the the main purpose of of bringing you onto the podcast was to discuss uh, the book. You know, this is a leadership podcast, so to discuss your Norton anthology that you put together. And you had me from the very beginning of that book when you incorporated what is probably my all time favorite television show, The Wire, into the inter- into the introduction to your book. So what about that show merited inclusion in this study about leadership? 
Well, that introduction was so much fun to write, and I had seen The Wires several times by that point. I had discovered it late, uh, not when it originally came out, because I don't get HBO, so I had to to uh, mm-hmm. catch up on years of The Wire. And then I introduced it to a, a friend who had just moved to uh, the Baltimore area, and I said, you mm. have to watch this, so I ended up watching it again. And that's as I was working on the leadership anthology, and I just thought that, I mean, it touches on so many things, that show, but I just thought that it really gave, in very interesting ways, the way it spiraled out into various aspects of life in Baltimore, everything from the police force to gangs to the dock workers to the school system, that there were all of these little case studies in leadership, most often failed leadership, Mm -hmm. but that it really did address the intersection of so many of the the issues that those who look at leadership from various perspectives encounter, and it was all done in in this really well written and and tightly tightly organized series. Mm. Yeah, I uh, that so I'm rewatching Wire right now, and uh, the way that that show sort of uh, walks the the balance theme of being very uh, thoughtful and in many ways political um, and also being incredibly entertaining is is uh, remarkable to me uh, and uh, I love the I love the uh, the introduction where you included the, the pieces about Stringer Bell and Proposition Joe and his uh, his note about a crisis of leadership it's certainly where the the uh, the show discusses that concept the most directly but yeah, it's uh, it's really wonderful for those of you who haven't seen. Did you have you ever uh, talked to anyone from Baltimore about that about that show? I haven't actually. I don't even know mm. how it's received there, really. Mm. So I found every time. So I have a couple of good friends in Baltimore. I'm in the Washington D.C. area, um, and every time I go to Baltimore or uh, or I talk to a friend about Baltimore, I like. I've had to learn to not talk to folks about The Wire because I think that they're just like, oh, no, another person who wants to talk about this. Oh, they don't want to deal with it. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I think, uh, yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's sort of the the normal response. I also came to it pretty late, so maybe if I had been watching it in real time, uh, that that people would have been more interested to talk about it. So right, I mean, of course, it's it's obviously a Baltimore story, and and many of the things are specific, but I also think it's just, it's much more than that. I mean, it tells us about cities in general. Mm-hmm. It also just tells mm-hmm. us about intersecting systems and the various ways in which they're led and, and misled. Mm-hmm. But I can understand how I, I know that I'm from Boston originally, and when movies or TV shows don't get Boston right, according to me, then I get mm. very upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a, a lot of universality there as well. Uh, so I am uh, particularly fond of a review of your book that, that was published in the New Yorker last year by Joshua Rothman. So what is it like having your work analyzed in such a public forum? Well, whenever you find uh, someone who's such a good reader, it's really, uh, it's wonderful. It, I felt very fortunate uh, he had done, uh, Josh did a whole article on various leadership studies and on the problem of leadership because it's something that everyone talks about now. And uh, so he really, I thought, gave it a, a, a really generous reading, and so I was very happy about that. Um, and it also put uh, put the book uh, 
in a in an interesting context. It always helps me to see as a writer how how people respond to the work, what kinds of categories they put it in, and what aspects of the of the book stick out to them. Because um, sometimes you can't anticipate how how people will respond. So it was really uh, it was really great to have it there. Yeah, no, I'm I'm certainly grateful for that that article. It uh, led me to your work. So um, and I. Uh, I, I think it's uh, as a standalone piece, not even just as a review of your book, but as a standalone piece. I think it has some really, uh, some really thoughtful things to say. Um, so, what interests you specifically about leadership? Well, I think that my interest in leadership certainly is a product of where I teach and a product of being mm-hmm. associated uh, in some in in a several ways with military culture and being able to observe that culture. But I think that I didn't necessarily give the name leadership to many of the human behaviors that I was observing. And I I also think of military culture as as in many ways a reflection of of other trends in the culture, but a a sort of heightened, um, concentrated Mm. version of other cultures. It's like any subculture, any smaller culture, a distillation of things. It is a hierarchy, and so I think certain certain aspects are exaggerated. But it is, in the end, human beings figuring out how to get along with one another and how to accomplish a particular mission. It's just that the mission is often much better defined than it is elsewhere, and mm-hmm. that other people have the uh, the license to to tell you what to do, right? Or to, or or you mm. surrender to being told what to do, or sign on to being told what to do. I should say. Um, so there there are various aspects, as I said, that are heightened versions of of everyday culture, and the invisible workings of power in other cultures are just plainly apparent on people's uniforms, and you know no one can mistake who's in charge in mm. a room and those sorts of things. So uh, I think it. It taught me to understand various power dynamics in other settings, but also suggested to me the great value of various kinds of leadership. And I was able to watch many different kinds of leaders, some who who did things better than others, some who were better able to change their style with the times and with the particular needs than others. And and watching all of that mm-hmm. and that dynamic and then watching my students figure out how to become leaders and to take take leadership roles in various ways, implicit and explicit, has just been a, a wonderful opportunity for me. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting thought about sort of the transparency of leadership within the military uh, and the way that that sort of positional leadership is, is so much clearer in that space. That's a really interesting thought. Um, so you can uh, take this sort of any direction that you would like, but we, uh, but I ask this in every podcast. Uh, so what is the best book about leadership? Uh, I, that answer, I think, changes for me. Uh, week to week, perhaps. Uh, I have some favorites, many of which appear in the anthology, but I often think that the best answer to that and the sometimes surprising answer to that is the last text that I've taught, that sometimes things that emerge that have ostensibly nothing to do with leadership, nothing to do with, Mm. in in my students' case, with the, the context for their leadership, which is a military one, turns out to be the best book about leadership. 
and and offers mm-hmm. insights because they're not expecting them that that stick with them. So if I'm teaching Shakespeare or if I'm teaching Homer or if I'm teaching uh, poetry, lyric poetry that has nothing to do with with anything explicitly military, uh, sometimes that turns out to be the best book about leadership. And sometimes that's not necessarily purely about the content of the writing, but it's about the ways in which a particular piece of writing, a particular sensibility calls forth certain powers in my students so that some of the skills of close reading and of attention to detail and of a kind of agility and a sympathetic imagination and confronting experiences very unlike our own, that those, I think, are some of the attributes necessary to good leadership. And so any text that calls forth those kinds of powers strikes me in the moment as something that's the best book uh, about leadership because of the work mm-hmm. it does. Okay. Great. So I want to transition to our sort of the bulk of our conversation and our last segment here, which is six big leadership questions. So the uh, first question I have for you is that uh, your book, Leadership, Essential Writings for Our Greatest Thinkers, is in summary, a, I, I believe to be, I'm going to add these, uh, I'm going to add these adjectives here, but beautifully considered and masterfully researched examination of the process of leadership through excerpts from literature. So what do you see as the unique value of the overlay of leadership and literature? Well, as I, as I make very clear and as the selection of texts reveals, I, I'm, I study the humanities and uh, I have learned a tremendous amount from the uh, academic literature of leadership, most of which is produced by social sciences. And I uh, value that approach greatly and it's taught me a lot. It's taught me the necessity of looking at problems from a variety of disciplinary lenses. But I found that as a result of that heavy influence of the social sciences, and also I should say of, of, of history, one of the humanities, but I found that the link between literature and leadership, even though there are some literary texts that are often cited in leadership works, was underexplored, and that there could be great value in putting together a collection of unexpected texts in parallel, and reading them in parallel, and finding that a lyric poem might have something to say to um, a political treatise, and that that political treatise might also somehow sit nicely next to a military policy. And so those sorts of things, those unexpected comparisons, the things that make teaching so much fun, the things that make creating a syllabus so much fun, to to put unexpected texts together in order to see through lines that, that span historical periods and also to see the many ways in which our understanding in this case of leaders and leadership has changed dramatically from the earliest periods that I that I use uh, going back to ancient Greek and ancient Greece and Rome to nearly contemporary uh, pieces okay great so uh, I think there are many ways and you provide many ways to access and to digest uh, to digest the book. Um, 
However, the most linear presentation comes through, comes from the way that you organize uh, the, the, the book into narrative arcs. So these start with setting the system and are followed by emulating heroes and then so forth. So how did you determine that progression? I thought that, and I, I thought that, uh, I mean, that's the biggest challenge of the anthology. So that was a, it was a struggle, mm -hmm. actually, the, ta the table of contents. Uh, organizing that took took a great deal of of thought and care, and I and I was talking to someone who, as I was in the midst of it, who said what was both obvious and not obvious that the, the this table of contents was the real argument of the book, and so I I thought, and I alluded earlier to those qualities of leaders that I think various that interacting with various texts uh, helps to bring out, and so I started really less with the texts themselves, although those sort of sat behind it, than with these qualities that I thought were necessary. And so it does have, as you suggested, a, a kind of progress in that I thought the first thing, and, and perhaps sometimes leaders uh, prematurely want to lead rather than thinking about what kind of system they're trying to lead, and that there, there's a great deal of patience that's required in terms of analyzing the culture in which one finds oneself and the, the underlying assumptions that inform that culture. So that, that's why I wanted to start with those uh, texts that examined systems uh, before taking them in new directions. And, and then I go through a, a process of, of thinking about emulation and revision and until fi fun, finally one sort of feels at least a momentary sense of confidence and security in, in knowing how one leads best. And then, of course, that, that, that's never really a, a state of arrival, but rather a, a, mm -hmm. a condition, I think, of perpetual growth and development. And I think the best leaders realize that and sometimes abandon, never abandon their principles, but, but sometimes abandon entirely their strategies for realizing those principles because they realize that times have changed. And so there are a variety of, of, of uh, systems that uh, – and I should say attributes that I think the uh, the book was best organized through. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm sure that that was a I'm sure that that was a challenge in uh, in putting putting that together. Um, so, uh, so uh, to sort of uh, go off of uh, another um, another piece uh, that that you've done. Uh, so your piece in the Dallas Morning News, which is titled uh, "When We Worship Our Heroes." And then a recent Atul Gawande article in the New Yorker on the value of incremental medicine and the aforementioned Joshua Rothman review have me thinking a lot about the notion of heroism. And uh, Rothman's quote from from the review of your book from uh, 2016 has uh, his quote: "It can be dangerous to decide that you need to be led." Has lingered in my head now since since I read uh, since I read that review. So. How do you see uh, how do you see heroism as a destabilizing force in our society? Well, I think it's a, it's it can be a destabilizing destabilizing force in any kind of society. I think maybe in a democratic society, that instability takes a particular form. But I I, I feel that we all at times do need to be led and I mean, that's part of the, the the section on emulation and when we need to to look up to models and when we need to abandon them but 
I think that there is a great comfort, and I felt it myself when I have worked for uh, an army officer who inspires a particular kind of confidence. There is a, mm-hmm. a wonderful feeling that happens. You sort of you, you realize you don't have to worry about the decision because someone else is worrying about it. But getting into that habit and surrendering entirely one's autonomy and surrendering one's ability to make decisions oneself can be a very, very dangerous thing. And, and that is alluded to, I think, throughout American history in particular, people like Emerson, who realize the, the, the appeal of heroes, but also that danger of, of surrendering one's ability and one's right to lead oneself. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that that, um, I think that that's uh, certainly a, certainly an interesting call, um, and I think that uh, I think that President Obama has echoed that or uh, has echoed that a lot um, throughout throughout his presidency. The idea of uh, the idea of engagement, uh, the idea of uh, everyone needing to be politically engaged. Um, so to follow up on that, uh, in in your piece in the Dallas Morning News, um, you. I can't remember if you said this outright or if, or if you alluded to it, but um, do you believe that heroism is an anti-democratic concept? I think in many ways it is. I think that heroism and that the lionizing of, of heroes can be a galvanizing force in society and can rally people around certain ideals, and sometimes those ideals can be noble. But I think, and I... I sort of I, here I'm, I'm echoing some concepts that I, I think several of the, the founders articulated, John Adams and, and Jefferson and others, but Adams in particular, and he linked this with education. He, he's, he, he writes a letter to a British reformer where he talks about George Washington and he talks about the, uh, the ways in which people adore Washington and how dangerous that is. So for, for the case of Washington, he says it's okay because Washington is, a, is an extraordinary figure. But you can't count, he says, on a series of Washingtons. You can't mm. rely on people like Washington to be your savior. And so he uses this, this warning and he links it to education. And he says that the people need to consider themselves as the fountain of power. And in order to do that, they have to be, to use your word, engaged, and they have to be educated into a sense of what that power means. And in this case, it's, it's about power in a democracy, and it's about the preservation of democracy. And so I think that, that heroism and when one adores a hero, and often in, in the in the rhetoric of the founders. It's, it's a military hero who's the most dangerous, Napoleon, for example. But it can be any hero who, who takes us out of ourselves and who, uh, instead, of, instead of cultivating ourselves, and this is, you know, Emerson talks a lot about this, we, we instead adore someone else and that there's a real danger in that and a particular danger uh, in, in a democracy, yes. Okay, uh, so your uh, your inclusion of an excerpt from Carolyn Hybron's 
uh, when we were only when men were the only models I had made me think of an adjacent concept to heroism, which is mentorship. And in that section, Halbrun uh, discusses her one-time adulation of three literary icons. And relevant to this question, her gratitude for not having become, and I'll use her words, one of their disciples. Uh, Halbrun says this of Lionel Trilling's pupils. They all idealized him and referred to him often long after, so I thought what he stood for had ceased to be appropriate. None of his disciples could touch him. Indeed, I soon determined that, having, that their having idealized him uh, had limited them in their achievements and their dispositions. And then she later continues, one male model might have become the unwilling mentor to a confused young woman referring to herself. Uh, because there were three of them, I avoided that trap, the betrayal of the mentor, and scattered my hopes among the triad. So do you see mentorship as being limiting, uh, like Halbrun, do you see mentorship as being limiting or a trap like heroism? Well, I, it's tricky because I think it's necessary on one, on one level. But I also think then, as, as Halbrun recognizes, can be a trap if, you, if, you're un, if you're unable to outgrow it. So if you adore and model yourself on this mentor so exclusively that you then neglect to figure out your own strengths and to figure out whether you ought to be doing different things and whether you could succeed in, in other ways, then I think it does become a trap and it can, it can stunt your growth in that sense. I mean, I know that I have had moments in my career when I, when I have found someone whose work I admired and that emulation is a, is a sort of necessary stage, right? It's a kind of training. It's a kind of practice in the mm. discipline and in the approach. But then you realize sometimes, I mean, I'm sure there, I mean, everyone has blind spots, but you realize at a certain point, this isn't what I do best, or maybe this isn't the optimal way to approach this, or maybe this is an old-fashioned way to look at things. And so you have to be able mm. to sift through all of that. And that doesn't mean abandoning things that that are useful and productive and that have helped to shape you i think there's great value in that but then realizing that you have to to forge your own path is i is i think an important and sometimes frightening moment in a in a career mm. Mm. yeah yeah absolutely um and and uh you know what she's talking about there is is sort of literary innovation and um I don't know. It's just a. It's, if anyone has, hasn't uh, read that, I would really recommend it because I think it's a really uh, nuanced consideration with a lot of uh, with a lot of implications there. Because uh, it seems like, and I, I think an interesting thing about that particular excerpt is, it seems like it's going to be explicitly about gender, and it certainly is. But then it becomes right. about this this idea of mentorship as well, which I thought was a really interesting pivot. Um, so for my last of the uh, six big leadership questions, many believe that we are currently living in a state of political and social crisis, and you speak a great deal about crisis in your work. So how do you see, uh, what do you see to be the relationship between leadership and crisis? Well, I think there's a real romance that attaches to crisis and to a sense of urgency. And mm -hmm. uh, I see that in in various cultures, military culture, political culture. But there's a, there's a great feeling of when you're seen to be doing something, 
to be responding to a crisis. That gives us a kind of meaning, and I think it makes us feel valuable. And certainly the tension between that kind of life and the life of the mind is an interesting one because much of the work that academics do uh, is invisible, at least until it, it reaches publication. But the idea of thinking, the idea of talking about things, and the sort of frustration that comes from not arriving at early, at quick answers. So that sort of tension, uh, teaching at a military academy, that those two lives often come in conflict, and it's often a productive conflict. But it's the idea of being seen to answer, to meet an emergency, I think makes everybody feel valuable in a in a in a in a meaningful way. And I know that at this point, uh, many of my former students who have served in war have felt that kind of urgency and have done really valuable work. And I think the challenge of coming home from a war is, in part, finding value in other kinds of endeavors. Not, and I don't mean to pathologize this in any way because these are, are people who adapt quite beautifully to all sorts of challenges, but the idea that a lot of the work that we do that's not wartime work, it's, it's sometimes harder to see progress and it's harder to measure effort and it's harder to mm. see what it means to succeed, what it means to accomplish something, what it means to lead. But there's so much value in all of those kinds of invisible work that I think we, we don't realize that. And so we need to think about that and not to be overly enamored of crisis mode and of creating crises when there really aren't crises um, because mm. we think that it makes us seem important. And we like that. Of course, we like that. That's, a, that's human nature. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, or only finding, I, I think you alluded to this, but only finding value in work that is associated with crises. Um, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's interesting. Okay, so thanks to everyone uh, for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community, and thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Hammett. If you could, so for a final question sort of on our way out, uh, if you could challenge all of us to teach our students one thing about leadership, what would you choose? A, a text or a concept or oh you know just one thing whatever you uh, whatever you would pick perhaps that leadership is as seductive as it is necessary and that mm. we need to be able to realize uh, when one shades into the other and to be able to to resist its seductions when when appropriate Hmm. Okay, great. So you can find Elizabeth's work on the New York Times, the Atlantic, and Bloomberg, and you can also get leadership and her other books online. Uh, you can get more information about the, about the Student Leadership Program's knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash lead, on Twitter, at NASPSLPKC, on Instagram, which is NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter, which is at Miles, which is M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, which is S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to NASTheLeaderPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Elizabeth. 